What do you call that noise? It's anniversary time on What Do You Call That Noise, the XTC podcast, where we're celebrating two 40th anniversaries. First, the release of Senses Working Overtime on the 8th of January 1982, and then, just over a month later, English Settlement in all its double album glory. Hello, I'm Mark Fisher, and I'm thrilled to present the first of two episodes dedicated to one of the greatest records ever made. Next month, you'll be able to hear producer Hugh Padgham say... It's in my top three albums, probably, that I've made. I'm unbelievably proud of it. I think XTC has always been the most underrated band ever. And you'll also be able to hear guitarist Dave Gregory saying... I think we were all really, really blessed at that time to to have had that environment to work in and that music to work on. And to come out of it with a record that good... It's, it's, well, that's, that's why you do what you do. What a treat that interview is going to be. If you can't wait a whole month to hear it, you should make a New Year's resolution to support the podcast on Patreon. In return for a monthly donation, the Humble Daisies and the Nights in Shining Karma get to hear each podcast a week before its official release. If that appeals to you, just go to patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher to sign up. As ever, I'm indebted to all the wonderful Patreon supporters. Thank you very much for making the podcast possible. I'll name check the Knights in Shining Karma at the end of this episode. And what an episode it is. This is the deal. We're about to go track by track through English settlement in the company of the experts. Every one of them is a specialist in the theme of each song. In most cases, they are hearing the songs for the first time, and in all cases, They respond to those songs with enthusiasm and insight. Very many thanks to all 15 contributors for making the time to celebrate this 40th birthday with us and for responding with such passion and intelligence. You'll find links to their various books and websites at xdclimelight.com, where you can also buy a copy of What Do You Call That Noise? an XDC Discovery book. So pull out your copy of English Settlement, queue up side one, track one, and let the birthday party begin. What do you call that noise? My name's Sarah Smith, and I'm Chief Executive of Link Living. And Link Living is a Scottish health and wellbeing charity that works with people of all ages who are affected by um, trauma and disadvantage. The particular, I suppose, relevance um, to my charity and um, the song Runaways that I've just listened to and we're going to be uh, talking about is that we have a particular area of interest and expertise, I think, in working with young people affected by trauma. And we have a number of services that are particularly focused on supporting young people affected by homelessness. So, Runaways. Goodness, that really left me with a a huge amount of different feelings, actually. When I listened to it the first time, I was left, first of all, with a real feeling of sadness, of feeling frightened for the child, and a feeling of great loneliness. You know, loneliness for the child that they felt that their only option was to run away. I listened to it again, because I I have heard it before, but it was a long, long time ago, so it was good to actually revisit uh, this album. Then what really struck me was that I I heard the song 
through two different voices. When I first heard the song, I was hearing it very, very much through the child, even though it's actually the mother's voice. For me, all I could think about, and, and I think all most people would think about, was the experience of that child, the fear. But there was that other voice as well that was, you know, wondering what on earth was happening in that family environment, that that had happened, that the mother was chasing the father with a knife, all of that. So there was two, which I think is often the case, isn't it, in domestic violence, which ultimately this is around violence and how that affects um, young people and what what routes they have to get support in that or routes they don't feel they have to get um, support in that. And so that sense of just overall sadness that this was a family you know, that had been so impacted by violence, whatever the the predetermining or the influencing factors for them to have got to that point. So those were those the first things I was sort of thinking about. I then was really and and the the the, the line that stuck with me and and prompted such sort of emotions was the very simple line you heard screams from the warmth of your bed. You know, first of all, it reminded me very much about that security you have. I was very fortunate to have a safe and secure family. That lovely feeling when, you know, you're really tired or you've had a, you know, a horrible day or you've just had a nice day, whatever whatever it is, and you're warm in your own bed and your mum's come and tucked you in and said goodnight and and then you you drift to sleep, hearing sometimes the sort of murmur of, you know, the television or your, your parents chatting downstairs. And I, I, that, that's always been a very precious feeling for me and, and certainly for my son. I've always wanted that to be his, his experience. Um, so to imagine a child lying there, hearing the violence going on, hearing the song again, you then think it's not only the violence of witnessing the mother chasing the father with a knife, but also we then hear that the child's also been hit. Um, so, you know, this isn't a one-off. This is a this is an environment where violence is quite clearly a, a regular occurrence. So the thought that that child leaves that place of security, comfort, coziness, sleepiness, you know, their toys, whatever, um, all their familiar things and leaves the house and runs is just heartbreaking. I mean, absolutely heartbreaking. The other sentence, you slumbered on without being fed. This is not only about domestic violence. This is about neglect. So looking at this and thinking about the work that you know our charity, Link Living, provides, we, we work with young people affected by trauma. We understand much more about trauma now than I suspect you know, we did um, 40 years ago. Um, and I think that's what's very, very clever about this song. You know, 40 years ago, I'm, I'm not even sure if Childline existed. We obviously knew that horrible things happened to children, but I'm not sure it, it was widely known just how much that trauma affected somebody's trajectory, somebody's journey um, through life, how it impacted on their positive life chances, um, their ambitions, their way of managing emotions, managing difficult situations. Certainly what we see with young people that have been significantly affected by trauma, that the way that they handle difficult situations um, can be considered very unhelpful by other people. But that's what 
they grew up in, that's what their default position is to sabotage, to run away, to have their area of comfort is often chaos. So they can sometimes create that chaos, obviously unintentionally. But but one of the things we do is is really support people to build their resilience, to to understand how to regulate their emotions, to understand, you know, and give people the self-tools to be able to do that. So it's not just about that initial trauma, but it's about tools for life as they move forward. And I think that looking at the the, the, the title and the, the, the theme of the song, there is a significant correlation between young people affected by trauma and homelessness. You are roughly 16 times more likely to be homeless if you have suffered significant adverse childhood experiences. And you see this song and you, you, you can understand, you know, that, that just sums that up, doesn't it? That, that, that absolutely sums that up. I look at the song and you want to reach out actually to the child and say there are other choices, you know, there are other people out there that can help you. Um, and what we know from children who have experienced trauma is that the longer term negative effects on how their life develops can be significantly reduced um, if there are what we would call sort of resilience factors or protective factors. So if a young person has a significant other that they can turn to, whether that's a teacher or a, a relative or a neighbour, somebody that they can turn to, you know, that that is a hugely positive, um, uh, you know, impact on, on, on their experience. And I think that's why when I first heard the song, I, the word loneliness really struck me, you know, that that child clearly didn't have anyone um, they felt they could turn to. So I think what, that's what really strikes me about this song. There aren't many words. Uh, and, and yet the words that have been chosen are so cleverly chosen to represent that really complex issues because we know homelessness is complex it's not always you know it it, it can be about affordable housing unemployment trauma you know in this case domestic violence all of you know we know that um, homelessness is complex but I think this song really sums that up you know that it, it really does what do you call that noise yeah hi my name's uh, Noel Ponting I was a contributor to a magazine called Swindon Heritage which um did its best to show that Swindon's heritage well, it was very deep, very interesting, very exciting. And we wanted to show that sort of the image that Swindon has was not correct, that it was pretty special to a lot of, lot of people locally. And, you know, we hope that its image was improved, perhaps in a very minor way through, through the magazine. So, ball and chain, what does, it, what does it mean to me? As a song, it does exactly what it says on the tin. Terry's power, perhaps in part mimicking the, you know, the machinery of, of wrecking a town centre. There was a lot of redevelopment happening in the, um, in the late 60s, certainly early to mid 70s. The Victorian heart of what was New Swindon was being flattened to prepare for a new modern town centre, which uh, uh, as befitting one of the, the fastest growing towns in Europe at the time provided a new bus station, new courts complex, new police station, new post office, a new theatre. Like many XTC songs, it's, it's kind of like a quasi love letter to what Swindon was. It's one of love and loss. But I think it also speaks of the overwhelming power of, of kind of like big business, big developers on a more general front, development corporations. It speaks of the loss of heritage, in my humble opinion, it, the, the despoiling of the, the visceral relationship between people and the built environment. 
homes where families had may well lived for many, many generations. And it speaks of the vulnerability of working class communities. I guess it's a requiem for a lost town centre, perhaps also a lament for a lost community, lament for an adage, perhaps, that an Englishman's home is his castle and the sanctity of, you know, your own four walls. Nothing exemplifies that struggle than the cover art, which shows a black and white photo of three homes. Only one of, in the middle is, is occupied. And uh, that was the home of Richard and Betty Uzzle and had been since 1955. They lived at a house called 6 Westcott Street in Swindon. Now, this wasn't right in the centre of Swindon. It was kind of off-centre. Their street and the surrounding land was wanted by the local authority to build a development of social housing, mostly for people of retirement age, I think. The council was keen to get the development underway and had offered people money to vacate. They had, in fact, got a, uh, what's called a CPO to get the area cleared. And the puzzles stood their ground and tried to withstand the compulsory purchase order. And in 1975, they decided to appeal it. And actually, unusual for the, the little man in such a struggle, they, they actually won and frustrated the council's attempts at uh, trying to seize what was the last house in the street. Fast forward then to around 1980, and the council was still frustrated, and they made a further offer to buy the house, which Richard rejected as, uh, as, as, as insufficient, and there followed after that a, quite a standoff. By, by 1983, the council were getting more and more frustrated, and they had another go at securing a compulsory purchase order. And as a consequence of the struggle and its associated publicity, a lot of people signed a petition in support of the couple. And as a consequence, the matter had to go before a public inquiry. The inquiry was subsequently held on the 24th of May 1983, the outcome of which was that the council did get a compulsory purchase order. And Mr. Russell was quoted in the local paper saying, I don't give a damn what the outcome of the inquiry is, and I don't care how many CPOs they send me, I'm staying. As a consequence to the story, the council did get, finally get permission served the new compulsory purchase order and with some further negotiation the couple did finally accept a figure from the council which they felt gave them an opportunity to buy a house of equal size elsewhere in Swindon and the end of the story was that the property was finally demolished in in April 1984. So I think what I love about the cover is that being in black and white it kind of helps to convey an area of kind of bleakness that they were the, the last house standing. From a historical point of view, Swindon, you know, was a town of hard, tough working people, you know, bristling with vision and, and innovation. And it had created itself following the, the birth of the GWR and was formed of, I think, a lot of nonconformist, independently minded people. And Culturally and socially, Swindon was very much at the time a kind of like a bottom-up community rather than anything else. It bred some determined and stubborn people, and I think Richard Uzzle was um, typified that sort of that sort of feeling that I'm standing my ground. And of course, the footnote to this was the fact that um, when he passed away, um, the service for, for for Richard Uzzle was one of the first uh, services to be held at the New Wiltshire North Wiltshire Crematorium, and they played the single during his ceremony, which I think is, is, a, is a, lovely, uh, a lovely footnote. What do you call that noise? 
My name's James Wanneson. I'm president of the UK Synesthesia Association, and uh, I'm also a synesthete and also an XTC fan. I'm going to be speaking today um, about the track Senses Working Overtime. I'll also be talking about synesthesia and how the two are linked. Synesthesia um, is a neurological trait, uh, which simply put means that uh, stimulation of one sense, such as hearing, for example, can simultaneously have an effect on another sense, such as vision. Some synesthetes, for example, can see sounds and uh, others can feel colours. Personally, I can actually taste sound. Um, and the, the general theory about synesthesia, or the, uh, the origin of synesthesia, is the fact that we're all born with it. As, uh, as newborns, our brain are a sort of cerebral soup up there, that everything's connected to everything else. And as the brain sort of develops, there's a pruning gene comes in and cuts all those extra connections. It's just that uh, in some cases, if that pruning gene doesn't work properly and it leaves some of those connections remaining. I remember being very, very interested when I first heard that Andy Partridge was a synesthete himself. And I saw an article where he described the fact that he'd had this for as long as he can remember, which is usual with most synesthetes. And the, the interesting thing was that he actually uses it in his, uh, his own creative process. Um, in his case, for example, a specific chord may have a unique colour of its own. Um, but where his actual synesthesia stands out is the fact that when he hears sounds, he um, automatically and involuntarily visualises those sounds. These uh, visualisations are sometimes quite complex. You know, they're virtual stories, if you like. It is quite unusual, because I mean, I understand that you know a lot of people do experience sort of visual images uh, in response to a piece of music, but I've got to emphasise for a synesthete, it's a far more intense and lasting experience. And uh, it's obviously a lot more complex than simply associating a chord with a colour. Because one of the things I really enjoy about uh, finding out things like this is that it gives you a glimpse into the creative process of people like Andy, and that in itself is, you know, interesting in its own right. Well, there's been a, a lot of study on the, the effects of synesthesia on creativity. So it has been proven, or at least uh, statistically proven, that uh, synesthesia does aid with the creative process. Uh, and yeah. Andy himself, you, you, I actually feel it within the, the track senses working overtime. It's like having had the, the, the insight that he's got synesthesia, I can see where it all comes from because he's sort of created a, a, an intro that really, this is the thing that caught me originally about the song. Um, it's very tasty for me uh, for a number of different reasons, but he creates a, a visual picture in his own mind. It sounds very sort of um, gestery, you know, the gestery gestures of yore. And it sort of creates that picture. And from then he will create the lyrics to fit over that and create the story around this visualisation. It's a fantastic process. Uh, since he's working overtime, doesn't actually directly uh, reference synesthesia if you go through the lyrics, but the, the title certainly does. I, I remember buying this single back in the well when I was in my early twenties, and I liked it so much. I remember buying the CD reissue, which came out a few years later. And I sort of bought it, as I said, because I loved the rather tasty intro. It was wine gums and dark chocolate buns, which still is. And I made an instant connection with the title. Um, and for me, even the, the simple counting, the one, two, three, four, five, has significance because it emphasises the layers of synesthetic taste, flavour, temperature, volume and texture being added on top of one another, layered. 
Um, and that's what I get when I listen to a track. So it's got a certain relevance there. It's a, it's a quite a complex song, actually, because and it's very lyrically, which adds another layer of synesthetic experience on top. Um, but it, because it changes tempo, because when I, when I get a change of tempo in a, in a piece of music, what it does is it alters the texture that I'm feeling. So I get a mouthfeel and it alters the texture. And if it speeds up or slows down, that can either sweeten or add more of a salty, savoury taste to, to, to the dish, to the song. The overall, the, so I get an overall flavour. If you, you know, whenever the subject comes up, I immediately think of the, the overall flavour I get for the track itself. And that's always been very simple, which is what I quite like. It's got the taste and texture of minced beef. Very, very simple. So it's uh, it's minced beef, and that runs throughout the whole thing. And when, and when the tempo slows, the minced beef gets thicker, uh, which people can maybe understand. And um, when it speeds up, and it also sweetens as well, which is a bit odd. But it's um, what I'm saying here is a very very complex taste. I mean, the, the acoustic guitar will give me a taste of. Um, it's a bit like again, it's sweet. It's a bit like fruit gums, um, but it's that sort of taste, um, but very very tarty. Andy's voice uh, has got a taste and flavour of its own, which overrides and sits alongside the, the synesthetic taste I get for the lyrics themselves. <clears throat> There's quite a few uh, instances there where he brings up food, funnily enough. Yeah, and the, the sun's like pie. I mean, the sun isn't like pie. It's like uh, it's like condensed orange juice that uh, you don't add any water to. It's very thick and gloopy. <clears throat> but there, there's a few references to, to food in there but I think the, th the thing here is this trying to take it all in because I can see what, what Andy's saying here I think um, in the, the the world's a, a fascinating and amazing place there's good and bad you know suck it all up and bring the two together and just enjoy it all for what it is enjoy the richness and it's the same with synesthesia synesthesia's like that <clears throat> if you can add another sense to an experience you connect with that experience all the more so remember yesterday um, i actually played this song with a with a haptic vest on and it's absolutely incredible because you're adding then the sense of touch to everything else and it's something that i'll pick up on quite easily and readily but it's a, it's an amazing sensation you know um, it's like, like having a massage for a start, but it's uh, it's all done in the right places. I mean, the, the haptic vest is simply a series of subwoofers stuck on your body, but it's a really great experience. Again, it's just an example of adding another another sense into the mixer. Because I, I like um, well-produced music. In other words, uh, and most synesthetes will actually agree with that, it doesn't matter what flavour they are. What actually emphasises your synesthetic experience is the contrast. So, you know, as you move from light to dark or uh, from soft to it's a crisp it's that sort of thing and um, well-produced music has got stops and starts and you can hear the layers you know the way it's all been layered and created uh, at xcc uh, this uh, probably is one of the reasons why i first picked up on them uh, uh, one of the groups that seemed to grasp that better than anybody else to me at the time um and i started wearing headphones then as well for the first time stereo headphones absolutely absolutely amazing because that unlocked all sorts of other flavors within my own synesthesia because one of the things I've got to emphasise, you can't turn this off, you can't turn it down. It's totally and utterly involuntary, it's just there. Um, and you have to sort of think around it, a bit like you think around tinnitus maybe, or hear around tinnitus. And really, I, you know, I'd like to think of senses working over time as referring directly to sort of Andy's experience as a synesthete. Because he's got this natural response, which is to accept the good and the bad and to, to work with it. You know, people ask, why don't, why don't you just get them to take it away? And I'm thinking, well, we, 
it's like uh, you smelling something and it's awful and then being offered the chance of having all your sense of smell taken away you just wouldn't do it you live you live with the bad as well as the good that's what makes good things good or better because i i do a lot of pairing up food with music i do it do it for myself really more than anything else but it's a fascinating thing because if you get it right you know you can actually bring out certain notes in the music by eating the right kind of food and it also enhances the uh, the the food itself as well you know it'll make something a bit more lumpier or and it's a it's a fascinating subject the whole thing and again you know since he's working overside an absolutely perfect title what do you call that noise my name's charlotte higgins i'm an author and a journalist and my most recent book is called greek myths a new retelling i'm a classicist as well as everything else now, jason and the argonauts uh, if you say those words to me, that immediately makes me think of the great epic poem, The Argonautica by Apollonius of Rhodes, which tells the story of Jason and the Argonauts at enormous length. And so um, Jason is required in a complicated backstory kind of way to go and fetch the Golden Fleece from Georgia, from the other side of the Black Sea. So he assembles a crew of companions and they sail off and they get to Colchis, which is the kingdom ruled over by King Aetes. Um, and their plan, such as it is, is to ask King Aetes if they can have the Golden Fleece, <laughs> which isn't a very good plan. Um, and um, the gods see that, that he's not going to succeed if he <laughs> just follows this rather lame idea so um the goddess Hera makes the daughter of king Aetes Medea fall in love with him and so that she will help him and so she does help him when Jason and his heroic friends arrive king Aetes says well yes you can probably have the golden fleece but first of all you need to fight some bronze fire-breathing bulls and do some other kind of tricky tasks Jason is asked to sow a field with serpent's teeth and from these teeth will grow a band of warriors that Jason has to kill. Anyway, he, he's only able to fulfil this task of fighting the bronze, fire-breathing bulls and taming them and putting them to the plough so that he can sow the field of teeth of serpents and then kill the resultant warriors because Medea gives him a salve of invulnerability <laughs> to rub into his skin like a kind of lovely moisturiser, I suppose. Um, and so he's able to do it. And, and in fact, the whole story of Jason and the Argonauts, to me, um, you know, rereading re this in, in 2021, as it were, um, is really a story of how incredibly heroic and clever Medea is because she has lots of supernatural witchy power and she makes everything happen for Jason. So, so I think when I listen to the song Jason and the Argonauts, what I get is a great sense of spaciousness, like the music summons up as a sense of a very broad landscape and, you know, a kind of marine landscape. And the pulse gives us a sense of, of a sort of journey and an adventure. And, and of course, so, so do the words. I have to say, I've got some, I do, I've got some problem with the rhyming of gravel with unravel. <laughs> I'm not sure, like, 
where's the gravel? But anyway, there's clearly a sense of journeying, of quest, of trying to reach something. And I think that's wonderful. In my feminist revisionist way, I would also say, well, you know, that is the basic idea of Jason and the Argonauts. But actually, in the ancient texts, if we read them, we see that all the heroic heavy lifting at every point is in fact done by Medea with her special witchy powers. So if you remember the Harryhausen film, where, for instance, the, the great giant Talos is standing on the shores of Crete hurling rocks at the little tiny ship and Jason very heroically sorts them out. Actually, in Apollonius of Rhodes' Argonautica, it's Medea who stands on the prow of the ship um, and with her magic, sorceress's powers, she fills Talos's mind with thoughts of death so that he falls over and cuts open his strange robotic leg and all his life source, his life power dribbles away like blood and he dies. So this is a curious process by which the story of Jason and the Argonauts in its ancient form was much more about Medea and actually Medea sort of been written out of the story and sadly does not appear in your song. And of course the, there's another association in Dante's Commedia. Dante is compared with Jason at a couple of points and there is, you know, the, the, so, so the idea of Jason as being, as it were, the ultimate, the ultimate I mean, I suppose alongside Odysseus, let's say, the ultimate kind of quester, traveller over the oceans. I suppose Jason's advantage over Odysseus is that he doesn't get every single one of his companions killed. You know, some of them do return alive. So he's he's more successful in that sense, that's for sure. Oh, well, I mean, the other Argonauts, I mean, they're, they're a kind of fantastic, you know, it's the brightest and best of all the other Greek heroes. So on that trip, well, he doesn't complete the trip. Heracles, for example, the Dioscori, Castor and Pollux, Orpheus is there providing musical entertainment. Heracles doesn't complete the quest because his boyfriend, Hylas, is also on the quest and goes missing because he's abducted by some nymphs and... Heracles uh, is hot, you know, has to try and look for his boyfriend. Now, that is not a detail that is often relayed in modern retellings because until quite recently, the idea of Heracles being a bit gay has not been something that, you know, has been ready to be discussed by reinterpreters of myths. But that is what happens to him. And Atalanta, the female kind of warrior and great sort of mighty achiever of great deeds, she wanted to go. She wasn't allowed. But yes, Jason and the Argonauts, as you say, it doesn't sound very top 20, does it? Apollonius of Rhodes, that famous <laughs> hit single. <laughs> what do you call that noise? I'm Nigel Fielding. I'm a professor of criminology at the University of Surrey. Um, and uh, for my PhD, um, I carried out a study of the National Front uh, which was an extreme racist right-wing party uh, whose heyday was in the 1970s and uh, into the 1980s when it was overtaken by other groups on the extreme right. Um, and um, my, my study was based on observational methods, which translating that means that I joined the National Front. Um, I masqueraded as a member for about 18 months before they figured out what I was doing. Um, and there are photographs of some of their demonstrations with me holding the branch banner of the Brighton and Hove uh, National Front and also the branch banner of the Lewisham National Front. 
Um, and uh, after the 18 months, uh, yeah, I was uh, heading back from the 1974 Remembrance Day celebrations or observations uh, in, in London. Uh, National Front would always go on after the Cenotaph official ceremony. They'd have their own parade. Um, and we were heading back for, uh, to, to Brighton, um, where, where the branch was based. We stopped in an obscure country pub. I was asked to come to a back room. Um, I was shown my membership card, and they just stared at me and said, uh, this is your last trip with us. Um, and so uh, it didn't take much for me to take the hint there. Uh, these are great big guys. Um, and that's worth mentioning because um, the interaction between the beliefs that they held which were quite complex, um, the ideology uh, and their attitude towards violence, highly nuanced and kept changing over time. So these weren't straightforward bully boys and that connects with the thing about uh, no thugs in, in my house. Um, uh, the, the, the role of violence in the National Front sometimes welded the party more closely together, sometimes divided it. Uh, the, the PhD uh, turned into, into a book um, it would have been the first book on the National Front if uh, the libel laws hadn't held it up for three years. So the book finally came out in 1982. Um, and then it was, to my great surprise, reissued three years ago. What I wanted to do was to make some remarks about the way I read the lyrics of the song um, and then come back to some of the context uh, that I think it resonates with. The song is um, simple in form, and really rich in, in, in symbolism and meaning. Um, and also it delivers its message, of course, in the way that it's presented. It's some of the most um, aggressive singing I think I, I, I've ever heard. And, you know, I love rock music. I also love classical music, jazz, and so my taste is eclectic. Um, but really the delivery uh, of the lyrics is, well, punchy is a total underestimate. Interestingly, the central character, but the central character who's asleep um, through, through the action. Uh, that's followed quickly by the chorus, uh, where the key couple seem to put faith in Graham's promise to be a good boy, uh, ensuring that there are no thugs in the house. Graham's wallet has been found at the scene of a racially motivated assault. The couple can't believe this and reiterate that Graham promised to be a good boy, not a thug. So here the context of the scenario the song is doing is worth taking into account. And during the 1970s, the running on the extreme right in the UK was mostly made by the National Front, the organization I studied, uh, which adopted the trappings of a conventional political party. It had a lengthy constitution, indistinguishable from that of any mainstream political party. It put up parliamentary candidates. In one particular case, it put put up parliamentary candidates in over 300 seats. Uh, so they had major financial backing. That's a lot of lost deposit, no, deposit money. They didn't win a single seat. And despite its leaders having convictions for offenses of violence, and the chairman had a firearms offense uh, convictions as well, the party had a nuanced and hands-off uh, um, attitude or public stance on violence against its opponents. Um, that doesn't mean that there wasn't plenty of violent confrontation. And in one case, uh, the Red Lion Square in a riot, um, most of the attacks were not directly on persons of color. They were mostly on student protesters 
were on anti-racist groups. Um, and that reflected the fact that most of the violence was outside NF meetings. Most of their meetings were held in, in the upper room of pubs. Um, and people would come and protest outside. So most of the violence was, uh, was outside uh, the building. Um, nevertheless, the NF employed, and these were paid employees, um, uh, stored what we call security uh, people now, um, bouncers, whatever, uh, strongly built men uh, that would wade in and make sure, in quote marks, that no one got into the meeting. Uh, there were also attacks directly on persons of, of color that did occasionally happen, and either spontaneous or involved a minimum of planning, usually just a tip uh, that a group of Asian lads was going to be hanging out at such, such and such a, a cafe, and they'd go along there and there'd be an attack. All of that is relevant to the lyrics concerning the pamphlets in Graham's bottom, bottom drawer, uh, and presumably the tattoo on his arm, um, and the other thing that the song mentions is the badge that his parents thought was a boys' club insignia, um, but presumably was a lightning flash or one of these um, uh, symbols for the extreme right. So the chorus about there being no thugs in our house is actually highly ironic. Um, there's a last twist to the song, which I have to say I didn't find altogether convincing, uh, to the effect that Graham was proven innocent, presumably the cop you know, reported the assault, the case was brought and heard. Um, Graham was proven innocent because it turns out his father was a judge and the song implies was corrupt uh, in not despising himself from judging uh, his own son's case. Now, I thought that was a little implausible. I mean, judges can um, find favor with their fellows, but they'll do it indirectly. They, 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 don't, they don't sit on their own case, as it were. However, the important detail in terms of making you think is the bit before the final chorus, where Graham dreams of a world where he can do whatever he likes, which is probably a world all of us would like to live in. And I just want to link that back to a, a last point about myself. I grew up in the United States, um, and uh, at a time when uh, the John Birch Society, an extreme right-wing organization, uh, was making the running as a sort of distant cousin of, uh, of Trump, I suppose. And I found my way to the study of National Front because as an adolescent, um, I had been so disgusted uh, by the um, segregationist views, um, the anti-Semitic views, and the whole ragbag of the extreme, extreme right in the United States. My principal contact, my main way into the National Front, was through their student organizer. Like me, he had very long hair. Unlike me, he was from Belfast. And I have to admit that I really liked that guy. That we clicked, we got on well. And it's, I still have the feeling of um, extreme puzzlement and concern that I could so much like someone whose views were utterly repellent to me. Um, this chap, was, his name was David McCordon. Uh, he became a millionaire publisher in the United States. So I came here and he went there and he made millions out of publishing. Uh, he he, he uh, founded the Historical Revisionist Press and began to produce the very anti-Semitic materials that I was repulsed by. So uh, those are uh, quite a lot of thoughts were sparked by reading the lyrics of this song. And I'm really glad Mark asked me to, to look at it. I, I will now be checking out the rest of the album. <laughs>
Well, hello, my name's Helen Horsfall and I'm a long-standing member of the Royal Fourth Yacht Club in Edinburgh and I sail on the 4th, but in my youth I sailed in um, Cornwall and all over the place, really. So I would never say I profess I'm an excellent sailor or anything, but I have had a lot of experience and hours on the water in all sorts of boats. I've had a listen and a look at yacht dance which I think is a beautiful song. I'd not heard it before. Initially, I found the lyrics quite difficult to make out, so I was struck by the the music, the melody, and I very, very much see it being a sailing theme because of this very strong rhythm that goes through it. And you can imagine, I can imagine myself being on a um, a brisk sea in the fourth if. And Easter is blowing for a few days, you get quite a big sea building up. So I picture me being in a dinghy, not a yacht, because it's too energised for being in a slow yacht. You're in a brisk sort of dinghy in a easterly. And as the rhythm is so strong, your boat is going up the wave and then it's slapping down into the trough and then going up the wave and slapping down to the trough in a very regular way which of course waves aren't as regular as that but you with this slap of the bow into the trough there's this strong percussion sound I don't know this symbol or a saucepan lid or whatever but it reminds me of this slapping down the bow and then you're rising up again and this very much just lovely background rhythm goes through the song the whole way and it gets stronger and lesser a bit like you're getting a stronger wind and a, a lesser wind at times but th- that was the melody that that struck me anyway. They're, they're very much a, a rock, rock, rocking, rolling sea theme. Um, yeah, I thought it should be dinghy dance rather than yacht dance, but obviously that wouldn't scan. It's definitely an energetic sail on a brisk sea. It's not bobbing around in a mill pond type sailing. <laughs> to the lyrics, dance is very appropriate. It's it's in the rhythm. I picture ballroom dancers going around and, and dancing is quite like sailing in some respects. You, you, if you're dancing in a couple, you build up a very good, intimate relationship with somebody. You know how, what the other one's going to do. And dinghy sailing particularly can be very much like that. Uh, you rely very heavily on your, your co-partner. And it can, with the right combination of people, obviously, it can be a very romantic situation as well because you are working very intensely together. And it can be work or it can be play and relaxing and entirely depending on the weather so yeah I did associate strongly with the dance reference lyrically I get the feeling that there's a lot of energy and motion and 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 freedom and specifically he he talks about wheeling seabirds when you go sailing you often if you've got things bothering you from the land you just shed them you 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 can forget your worries when you're out at sea and he talks about not looking back and you look forward, you look forward in to the openness of the sea. Particularly sailing up here, you often can be the only one out in the fourth and, and it is an empty sea as opposed to down south sometimes, but you, you can cast off all your woes and worries. And there's a great lightness in the lyrics, like the skating and the skimming across surfaces of the mud or the, or the waves. So there's a lightness and energy and buoyancy in his words and in, and in the music. But also sadness. There's undertones of past sadness, pictures lost when all was rust, and, and rust is a very sea-caused deterioration. And again, he talks about lost now turned to dust. So obviously, 
I get the feeling that if this romance is light and breezy and happy, there's been past sadness and strong references to others who are possibly jealous of people in this phase of a happy relationship who would crush us flat. And he's referring to the sea there, but of others scorn as well. And the sea and, and other people can be an external threat to a happy relationship. However, coming from um, an older age now, I, I do think that you may feel that people are not wishing you well, but actually when you do see a happy young couple in love, you do wish them well, even if you're a bit jaded as you get older through life. Yes, he talks about jealousy. People outside of a free-loving, vigorous relationship could be envious, reflecting on their past loves now gone. But perhaps like boat watchers, they can wish they'd be casting aside their current worries and setting out to sea like this pair in the song are, are seeming to do on brisk waves with cotton sails. And I love the touches, he says, like cotton sails. It, we don't have cotton sails now. They're all man-made fibres. So it's got a nice sort of old romance to the boats. So I picture an old little wooden dinghy, not, not, not a yacht, not a modern yacht. It gives me a feeling of happiness as well. So I feel that this... It's a happy song with freedom, energy, bouncing along in a nice brisk sea with a nice brisk wind and forgetting their woes and going ahead and living. They're enjoying themselves. What do you call that noise? Nick Bain's Anglican Bishop of Leeds. All of a sudden, uh, it's too late. I think it's easy to see why, looking through a contemporary lens, you might say it has something to do with environmentalism or with the, the questions that were beginning to be raised in 1982 about the environment. But actually, I think, I think it's existential rather than environmental. What, one of the first things we have to come to terms with as human beings is our mortality, interesting, particularly during a pandemic. If we don't come to terms with our mortality, we constantly look for ways to escape or rationales for why bad things happen to us and so on. We are mortal human beings. We live in a finite, contingent world. And the second thing we learn is that we need each other. You know, we're not radical individuals. We actually live in community. We are social animals and so on. And I think that's what comes out of this song. You've reached the point of saying, Okay, strip all the stuff away. What's left? You know, life's like a jigsaw. You get straight bits, but there's something missing in the middle. We find the cupboard bare. We find heaven's not there. Where did you expect to find heaven? You know, we find the sun's gone cold. We find we're more than old. We find that we've lost love. Well, that, that's a very existential experience. It's what many people feel. Crisis happens, um, tragedy, loss and the almost impenetrable walls of coping just fall apart. And then we're exposed, and we either rebuild the walls really um, thickly so they don't get disturbed again, or we face the reality of being mortal human beings in a contingent world. And uh, they get it in the line, uh, life's like a firework, you're only lit once, and you must stand and radiate correctly. I found correctly a bit of an odd word um, to put in there. But uh, it's that realisation of mortality. You only get one go at this. Um, so what's it going to mean? And I think that's where, later in the song, you begin to feel your way towards some sort of 
answer. Love's not a product you can hoard or pack a suitcase with. It's more a way you have to give. The, the thing that holds mortality and our common humanity, our need to belong together, together, is love. And love is not a commodity that you can trade in. It's not something you can buy, or you know, Beatles said something about that. Um, you, you know, you can't uh, just play with it. And it's, it's that great, in a consumerist, commodified world, where we even commodify people, and we discover that love only works when you give it away. You can't accumulate it. So I, I, th- I think it's a really powerful song um, in that it, it holds these three together. Recognition of mortality, the nature of our common humanity, we need one another, and love that ironically has to be lost or given away if we're going to be loved. It's a bit more verbose, but it's a bit Leonard Cohen-ish. Or um, it, it, it reminded, don't ask me why, um, but it reminded me of the Bruce Coburn um, song, The Refrain of All the Diamonds, I think it was, um, that says, um, love that fires the sun, keep me burning. Because the sun is finite. You know, keep me burning, one day I'll expire. You know, it'll burn out. Get used to it. <laughs> um, I'm a great Coburn fan. What do you call that noise? I'm a spokesperson for Gun Control Network, which is a small non-profit making organisation formed in the aftermath of the Dunblane tragedy. The founders included lawyers and academics and significantly parents of those 16 small children and associates of them um, who were killed in Dunblane by a solitary gunman who legally owned a great many handguns at the time. The, the title Melt the Guns immediately brought to mind to me a fantastic bronze sculpture, The Knotted Gun, by the Swedish artist Carl Reutersberg. He made it in 1984, and it actually stands outside the United Nations building in New York. There are obviously lots of representations of that knotted gun elsewhere, and obviously it's a bronze with a barrel which might well have been melted in order to knot it. Melting the guns would be a utopian dream. And in the absence of utopia, what Gun Control Network and the public can do is to pursue realistic interests in in the interests of public safety. And Gun Control Network do work towards reducing the availability of guns through legislation and controls. We also want to change the culture to raise awareness that guns aren't attractive and aren't desirable and aren't the way to end disputes and so lyrics such as this go towards changing that culture and the idea that in in clubs um, and gigs people do sing those lyrics in in that way do begin to change the culture so we thank them for doing that and the writer for, for um, 
creating the work. One line which really resonates with me, and there are several, is um, the mothers supply them as long as your killers are heroes. Our evidence is actually that gun culture is male-dominated. And if we look at the homicides, the gun homicides in the UK, we see that when women are fatally shot, the perpetrator is almost always a man and almost always a man in, uh, who's an intimate partner, a former intimate partner or a mother or a family member of the victim. And the perpetrator is almost always, uh, as in recent multiple shootings, that's um, Cumbria, Horden, West Sussex, and recently in Plymouth, is a man with a licensed gun. Mothers may, and no doubt in some cases, do supply guns to children, but the evidence is that the overwhelming cultural pass-on of weapons would be from father to son. Our gun homicide rates are minuscule compared to those in America and, and in, in many other countries. But there is absolutely no need to be complacent. I think our gun homicide rate is around about 30 each year. For many years, that has been reducing, which somehow surprises people because the impression which many media outlets give to the public is that gun crime is out of control and gun homicides are exceptionally common occurrences, which they absolutely are not. The first event which gun control network created was to do with the snowdrop campaign and then the the rise of gun control network and this was following the Dunblane tragedy the most major impact without doubt was the handgun ban at the time of Dunblane pistol shooting was the fastest rising sport within the UK and we were set to go down the route that America has been following for many years. And we, we aren't now following that. The handgun ban reduced handgun crime hugely. But what it didn't do is stop the manufacturers of handguns quickly circumventing that ban by promoting replicas and imitations. Now, when crimes are reported by victims as being, for instance, a robbery enabled in a store with a perpetrator holding a handgun, then the chances are that that handgun will be a replica, an imitation and a, a well-crafted toy made to look exactly like the actual weapon it replicates and that's been a marketing success by the arms industry. We know we can't melt the guns but what we can do and what the boys are doing by singing clearly these lyrics is we can make people think about what having a gun means and perhaps raise awareness that having a gun in the home increases the risk 
those living in the home with a gun. They face an increased risk of being involved in gun accident, gun suicide, the gun homicide and murder-suicide. And there's another risk in sharing your home with a gun, and that's of robbery. Getting a gun should be expensive and difficult. And knowing that you have a neighbour, for instance, who goes shooting, the criminal fraternity may well become aware of that. And it's a very cheap and easy way to acquire a weapon is to break into a home with a gun. So this, this song and these lyrics raise that awareness. And whilst we know we can't melt the guns, much as we'd like to, what we can do is something about the nevermore desire them. The line prevention is better than cure is certainly resonating with campaigners because prevention means looking at the legislation, making guns less attractive and raising awareness of the harm that they can do in our society. What do you call that noise? Hi, I'm Pat Kane. Um, I'm a writer, musician, consultant, futurist, etc. I, I once wrote a book called The Play Ethic in 2004, and I think that gives me the credentials to have a bit of a response to this XTC song from the early 80s called Leisure. This is a classic post-punk jaggedy song, but I do, I do love the lyric. Uh, brilliant, stereotypical, brilliant. Uh, lyric by Andrew Partridge. Uh, Andy's, Andy's lyrics sort of kept me going through much of my early teenage years whenever I heard them on the radio. They're always life-saving. I didn't hear this one on the radio, but this is in the same genre. Um, I do have a bit of a long-standing interest in theories of leisure and creativity and society and technology. So it's it's absolutely clearly the case that uh, Andy has been reading some of the same books that I've been reading over the years, um, and particularly, I mean, it's particularly interesting listening to a song that's anxious about leisure because it comes, you know, just at the time when um, leisure books were kind of pouring out of the presses. When I, I've got a list here of some of them coming up, 1979 to 1982, there's about 20 uh, post-work uh, Future of Leisure Society books that I can see here. I mean, the one that I remember, Andre Gortz, uh, Farewell to the Working Class, came out in 1980, so um, a smart a smart post-punk person would have read that book. But the key line in the song is, is the chorus, which I think is, if you think I'm clowning, I assure you that I'm drowning here in leisure. They taught me how to work but they can't teach me how to shirk correctly. Now, that line completely jumped out at me because that goes all the way back, uh, not just the sort of 60s or 70s, anxieties about technology replacing humans and sending them into a world of leisure, but it goes further all the way back to John Maynard Keynes, the great economist, who wrote a very famous essay called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren in 1930. And it's all it's all about anticipating what are we going to do when our technology becomes so productive that our working week reduces to a few hours or a few days. And that line, they can't teach me how to shirk correctly, is almost an exact echo of something that Keynes says in this essay, which is that, I mean, I'll just read you out the bits. Thus, for the first time since his creation, man will be faced with his real and permanent problem, how to use his freedom from pressing economic cares, how to occupy the leisure which science and comprehend interests will have won for him, to live wisely and agreeably and well. I mean, that's that's really 
teach me how to shirk properly is exactly what that says. And then Keynes goes on to say, it's those peoples who can keep alive and cultivate into a fuller perfection the art of life itself and do not sell themselves for the means of life who will be able to enjoy the abundance. When it comes, we have been trained too long. Literally, this is what he says. We have been trained too long to strive and not to enjoy. It is a fearful problem for the ordinary person with no special talents to occupy himself especially if he had no longer roots in the soil or in the beloved conventions of a traditional society. Now, that person that Keynes is talking about is exactly the character that's in this lyric. And it's it's full of that anxiety. I, mean, I, don't, know, I don't know what Andrew Partridge's class background is, but it's full of that anxiety about what happens to the working class when they become the post-working classes. They lie around all day, get drunk, which is, is a line in the, in the song. Um uh, that they would, um, in the classic words of Gordon Brown about 15 years later, worrying about the working class, lying around all day, playing video games, watching television on their couch. That's exactly the scenario that Andy evidently you know, fears. I spend all day of my allowance in TV games, amusement heaven at the flick of a switch. Instead of a lathe, I busy my fingers nowadays by scoring goals with the gentlest twitch. That's very prescient. I mean, there are people getting themselves into a lather about the metaverse, which is this big interconnected virtual digital world that people with Martin Zuckerberg are pursuing. But the anxieties that they have about it is that people are just going to use it as escapism. They're just going to use it as a diversion from a burning planet or a, or a divided planet or whatever. Um, and I think that's interesting about the whole song is that it's that it, it, it sort of... It's quite conservative in its assumptions about what human nature will do for itself when freed from... The, the specter of necessary toil. If it's when it's freed from the specter of necessary toil, basically people are going to be drowning, drowning in possibilities. Um, so I think that's quite interesting. I mean, there's another line that I thought is you know, they had, they had retired me before I left school. I just know, saw no point in standing in line. So I spend lots of time lounging at home. Why not come in? Because the carpet is fine. Um, the beach, the waters are fine. This is a lovely line. But that that idea of being retired before you left school, it's it's probably maybe it wasn't on the horizon for Andy, but that hints at what we nowadays call universal basic income, you know, which is the idea that you actually pay people for existing um, when their jobs have been automated and taken over by smarter technologies. I love the fact that he's even too lazy to sing the whole of the word leisure in the chorus. He sort of go, he sort of sings leisure and then there's a gap and then he takes a rest, a lazy rest and then goes on and completes it. There was another point I really wanted to make. They've put a microchip in my place. I hide behind a screen of aggression nowadays. It's just a way of saving some face. I think that's, you know, also prescient um, because there are many who would talk about the rise of, of, of conservative working-class politics and populism, which is about the displacement of white male industrial workforces. And, and that kind of, I hide behind a screen of aggression is, is very much, you know, I think very much anticipates the kind of collective disgruntlement that we're actually going through at the moment, you know, and I think that you could sort of see that happening in, in the working class response vote for Thatcher. Um, and it's, it's, it's like a very, very long 40 year story, you know, about how, how that, that, uh, that collective disgruntlement at not being white male industrial primacy uh, has been exploited politically. And I think is is like many, many post-punks, you know, they just completely anticipated a lot of what was going to happen over the next 40, 50 years. And I think it's the opening line is also really interesting, but he says, you see science once again, 
robs us of our jobs. So that that's Andy being very much aware of the historical context of this. Uh, it'd be interesting to, for him to think about where we are at the moment with AI and robotics. It's 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 in a sense it's always over the horizon and it never quite arrives. So I think I think that's quite again aware aware of Andy. There's, there's a sort of cyclical element to this, you know, and that maybe at this particular moment in two twenty one. We're in a moment of the cycle where we can't quite see where things are going. But I think he's got that right. Once again, we're in this situation where technology increases efficiency of production. But the question is, how do we use, how do we utilise that efficiency? Do we do it just to become even more consumers? Or do we do it in order to give ourselves time to live wisely, agreeably and well, as as Keynes would say? And I think he's completely... He's completely aware of that. He's, uh, he's, he's aware of that constant challenge of technology and innovation to the culture of work. Um, but I think he's um, anxious about it. And I, and I remember that from quite a lot of XTC songs, particularly making plans for Nigel. You know, so there's a sort of real anxiety about what it is to work, what it means to work. Um, I think a lot of a lot of musicians at that time. Um, are haunted by the idea that they're not doing proper jobs, that they're involved in this sort of spiky, punky, pointless mu- music business. Um, very few of them, I think, would have the kind of theoretical and, and intellectual rigor that Andy's displayed in this lyric. What do you call that noise? Why do you call that noise? My name is Carl Honoré, and I'm the author of a book called In Praise of Slow, which ended up becoming the foundation text of the slow movement. I'm going to speak about the song Nearly Africa and its links to all things slow. Now, it's a song that actually I'm a, a longtime XTC fan from early adolescence, but I don't, I don't, it was a new song to me. I'd never come across it before. And it's funny, I, I, uh, I've got to admit, I didn't actually like it the first time I listened to it. <laughs> I'm not quite sure why. It seemed very jumpy and nervy and syncopated and in some ways not kind of that slow. Um, but then I listened to it the second time and I, I really fell for it. And it genuinely was the second time. And it was a reminder to me of what the whole slow philosophy is about, right? Slow with a capital S. It's not about doing everything at a snail's pace, doing everything in slow motion. That would be absurd, right? I'm not an extremist of slowness. I love speed, right? <laughs> Faster is often better, but not always. And that's really the key to this whole slow Revolution. It's about doing things at the right speed, uh, sometimes fast, sometimes slow. Like musicians talk about the tempo justo, right? The correct tempo for each piece of music. And that sort of gets at what this slow culture quake is about. It's, um, it's like a mindset. It's quality over quantity, being present and in the moment, uh, w- moving with natural rhythms, which I think ties very much into the lyric of the song. Slow ultimately is about doing everything not as fast as possible, but as well as possible. So it's funny, people will think when they hear the slow movement that a, a slow song must have a tempo that's sort of, you know, adagissimo, right? Super slow. But in fact, this one I would say is closer, nearly Africa, is much closer to the, the sort of prestissimo end, right? It's kind of lively and upbeat and, and pretty fast tempo. But I think that in a way captures beautifully the, the delicious paradox of slow, which is that it's not about doing everything super slowly. It's got that... Um, that much more sensible idea of finding the right tempo. And the, and tempo can be fast, slow. It can light you up and can sometimes slow you down. So I think that's the, the, the actual song itself, the architecture and the, the rhythm of the song fits really nicely with the whole slow way of thinking. But the, of course, the, the lyrics are really what bring it home, I think. Um, it's all about 
in my reading of it anyway, it's all about remembering that we are creatures of the natural world because what happens when we get stuck in fast forward is that we get become unmoored from natural tempos and natural rhythms. We start moving at the speed of software. And that takes a, a horrendous toll on every aspect of our lives. And so there's one line in the song, which is, um, I think it's something to misquote, I'm probably gonna misquote, it's something like, don't try to push our bodies faster or any faster, we're dancing with disaster. And the first time, I mean, the first time I heard that line, I thought, yes, this man gets me, right? This is exactly what I've been preaching for the last 15 odd years, right? That when we get stuck in roadrunner mode, we end up paying a very high price, right? You know, we, we sacrifice on the altar of speed, so many things from our health and diet to our relationships, communities, the environment, our ability to think and work and so on. There was also that, what was, there was a line about, this is not a traffic roar, it's the leopard in your heart, right? And again, that kind of gets to my favorite way of thinking about slow, that slow is not being a couch potato and lying, you know, prostate <laughs> worn out on, on the sofa. It's, it's about finding the right tempo and as a result of that, you know, lift off, right? Um, and so you've, slow is very, I think of, I got one of my sort of go-to phrases that's sort of on coffee cups and <laughs> t-shirts is, in a world addicted to speed, slowness is a superpower. And I, I sort of think that line really, really echoes that, this idea. Put the traffic roar, which is the, the grim heartbeat of modern denaturalized life, and embrace the other kind of roar, the natural roar, which is a leopard in your heart. So I really, I like that line. And there was another line as well, if I can just tease one more out, which was, um, what was it? It was the first will be last. And I think that's another way of, I, often, I don't use exactly that form of language, but something very like it when I talk about the, the folly of speed, right? You get stuck in fast forward, you start making mistakes, you lose focus, you end up driving the car into a ditch, right? Um, and, and that uh, one of the, phrases you often hear is, you know, racing through life instead of living it. And also I think when you get stuck in that fast way of doing things, sure, you get there first, but where do you get, where do you arrive first? You know, you're the first person to arrive at the next red light, right? Or you're the first person when you're stuck in fast forward, you're the first person, you get to the cemetery first, right? You, you reach the tomb, the tomb before anyone else. And what, you know, what, what's, what's to be said for that, right? So, yeah, so those are three. Th those are three little lines that that really leapt out. I mean, I thought, yes, this is someone who, who understood the slow movement and what it all means long before I came to the party. <laughs> These are ancient truths that human beings are. We are beings of the natural world. We are at our best when we are living in harmony with our own tempo, the tempo of the natural world, and the idea that speedaholism is toxic, poisonous, and unhealthy, and that speed dehumanizes us, and that slowing down rehumanizes us, that is an idea that with deep roots, it goes all the way back to, I mean, even, even in the, the, the Bible, right? Even in the, the oldest texts, right, of human civilization, you know, in the Ecclesiastes, I think, is it, you know, or one of, you know, be still and know that I am God. You know, these, every great religion has a Sabbath idea, uh, prayer is the ultimate and oldest and most ancient form of slowness, of being present. Uh, so I think these ideas have always been there, and I guess every generation finds its own way of expressing them and its own way of folding them into the way the world is in that moment. So this song was from long before Facebook or Instagram were a, a glimmer, <laughs> a twinkle in Mark Zuckerberg's eye. Uh, and yet even then people were grappling with the virus of hurry, right? And looking for a way to vaccinate themselves against it. So yeah, I, 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 it's 
lovely for me as a you know longtime fan of XTC to know that they were they were part of the the conversation earlier as well. One of the things that a fast life does is that it disconnects us from other people, right? Because human relationships require time, slowness, presence, all the stuff that goes along with this slow movement, this slow creed. And I, I think what often happens is that when we get locked into roadrunner mode, we just, everything becomes about us. It's our, the next item on our to-do list, the next personal best we want to hit, the next goal we want to notch up on our CV and our LinkedIn profile. And again, we're coming full circle here with nearly Africa because there's a brilliant African proverb. The proverb says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And that, I think, gets to the very heart and core of what this slow culture quake is about. It's about, sure, it's about you know, being more productive, more creative, being healthier, happier, all that stuff, which is great personally, individually, but that's not where you stop, right? You, you take all of that and you just become a better citizen. You become a better human being for everyone else as well. And I think that's, so this song, this song kind of brought a lot of those things out really in a quite a out of left wheel sort of way. So very XTC in that sense. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a little tired of people playing, um, they're always playing um, Slow Down, You Move Too Fast, you know, from uh, Simon and Garfunkel. So this may be, this may be my next, <laughs> when, I, when I get asked for a little theme tune, this could be the next one, definitely. What? Do you call that noise? So I'm Professor Lucy Robinson. I'm Professor of Collaborative History at the University of Sussex, and I work on pop and popular culture, sex, drugs and rock and roll. I teach and research a lot on the 1980s, and I work with a, a great group of colleagues. Um, we're called the Network for Subcultures, Popular Music and Social Change. Um, and so we've been working on kind of pop subcultures and history for quite a lot, uh, about 10 years now. Today I'm going to be talking about Knuckle Down and I think it's a really great example of how big discussions around nationhood, migration, race relations don't just happen in politics, they don't just happen in policy, they happen in all sorts of culture, they happen in everyday lives and they happened in people's conversations and I think it's a really good example of how we can understand musicians as kind of public intellectuals in some ways and as part of the public, kind of making sense of the world that they're in. I actually think it's really important that XTC weren't part of Rock Against Racism. We've sort of all agreed this story about what anti-racism was in the 70s and 80s and it's always Rock Against Racism and it's always the clash in Vicky Park. And actually... In some ways, that's quite telling itself about how the long ongoing struggles around race in communities, in people's lives, in the streets, against the police, all of that stuff gets ignored until some white guys get on the stage with guitars. Right? And actually, Rock Against Racism can, you know, obviously brought the conversation to a huge generation and it made it uncool to be explicitly racist I'll go that far um, but it's not as though there weren't people fighting racism in other ways it's not as though no one had thought racism was a bad idea before if you're in a black or ethnic minority community you didn't need a group of rockers on the stage to tell you racism was bad right um, and in the story of rock against racism we end up ignoring you know, all of the incredible community work that young asian lads were doing to protect themselves and protect each other or the campaigns against police harassment that young people in social and youth uh, community workers were doing right? so i think in some ways it's important that they weren't part of the rock against racism 
story because that's the story that we've heard a lot of. And um, I mean, another you know, UB40, I think, are, another, are a band who you know, were, were, were quite critical of Rock Against Racism. And Jimmy Percy was quite critical of Rock Against Racism. Um, Pauline Black's been quite critical of Rock Against Racism. You know, it's not the only way of using music to fight racism. And I think one of the things that music can do is raise money, build an audience and be part of something that looks like a movement. I think that's partly why people like the story of Rock Against Racism, because it's what politics is meant to look like. A lot of people standing in a field, all facing the same way, that kind of, you know, listening to someone tell them what to think. But I think, you know, the politics of music is also about whose stories get told, what characters' voices you get to hear, how the world gets understood. It's not just getting people to stand in one place together, it's also getting people to listen to ideas in their bedrooms or start conversations or disagree with their parents. You know, it's it's much broader. So I think there's a lot of thinking about what it means to be British, what it means to have a certain identity that happens in the 70s and into the 80s. It's such an acutely racialized moment in time, there's almost no choice but to try and make sense of race, I think. And you know, other musicians are doing it, are, tr- are trying to work out what does it mean to be British and anti-racist. Paul Weller you know, went on a really interesting journey talking about um, what it, what's, Britishness, what a socialist Britishness might be. Morrissey, you know, he's, he, he sort of thinks nuclear weapons are a bad idea because they're anti-patriotic. You know, so there's a whole load of quite complicated conversations about what it means to be British um, and what it means to be from a certain place. And I think the, the kind of Coventry story in two-tone is, is, is part of that as, as well. I think that idea that this as, that a certain, certain cities are a version of Britishness that might be better than the version of Britishness you get in Westminster. You know, that this version of Britishness in the People's Republic of Sheffield or in Two-Tone Coventry, this might be a better version of Britishness. And music's a really important part of that, whether it's about bringing people together, giving them an aesthetic, giving them an identity. It's kind of music becomes that can become that glue for a better version of Britishness. Um, when Westminster and parliamentary politics isn't working for you. I mean, there's there's a version of Englishness that is a kind of radical reimagining of what Englishness can be, I think, you know, and some of that comes from the kind of hangovers from the slightly fey, countercultural 60s, 70s version of Englishness, which is a bit like Avalon and New Age and ley lines. Some of that comes from histories of English radicalness, you know, radicalism, whether that's around the levellers and and the kind of anti-private land registration and all of that kind of stuff. There's there's lots of versions of Englishness available. Englishness is made up, right? So you can make up whatever version you want. And in the late 70s, early 80s, there's quite a lot of versions knocking around that you could attach yourself to, I think. And under Thatcher and Thatcher's government, it's really clear what race relations means. And it doesn't mean how do we get on. It doesn't mean what do we learn from each other. It doesn't even mean things around kind of trade and exploitation. Race relations in the 70s and 80s means stopping people entering the country. Race relations becomes solely synonymous with immigration. And um, in 87, the Conservatives do a look how well we've done manifesto for the last eight years. And under the title race relations, there's only one point 
which is we've stopped fewer people from the Commonwealth coming here than anyone else has since 1962. That's the only thing we need to celebrate. We don't need to talk about urban unrest. We don't need to talk about education levels. We don't need to talk about pay disparities. We don't need to talk about housing or policing. We can celebrate the fact that fewer people have come into the country. It's much harder to have a nuanced celebration of national identity when the only thing that counts is stopping people coming to a piece of land. And in some ways that has infected our sense of what talking about national identity might be ever since, I think. So I think once that version of Britishness is put in place, with that all that coheres this nation is stopping people coming in, then there's much less to play with in terms of the kind of what version of Britishness do we want, what version of Englishness do we want, right? You're either in or you're out. Thinking about no thugs in our house, I think it's really important to remember how prevalent the the potential recruitment of particularly working class boys by the far right was. I mean, there was lots of concern um, yeah, in the undercover police about the the you know, kind of the far left or you know, and the IRA and you know the angry brigade and all of these kind of left aligned terrorist groups or extremist groups but actually you know, the real threat in terms of politics on the terraces and on the streets was the National Front organising around working class men and we need to remember how mainstream the National Front were you know, they, there's a, a, a by election in 76, I think, when they become, they come third in the statutory by-election. They beat the Liberals, right? They're, they're taking up to 20% of local, of local authority, of local government votes in some places. They're prevalent. They are selling their, they're selling their papers in your local pub and they are organising on your terraces and they're a real threat, right? So it's, and generationally, Though, you know, those those young those kids' parents don't necessarily think the National Front are the threat that they need to worry about coming for their kids. Right? So it's a really important message, isn't it? Is actually don't worry about immigration control. Worry about who's getting inside your boy's head. What do you call that noise? My name is Shara Ali. I'm the Green Party spokesperson for policing and domestic safety. I liked the content. The provocation in the lyrics and the song itself, Fly on the Wall, it's very relevant to us today, uh, even though it was recorded some 40 years ago. And I'm sure that many of the concerns, worries around surveillance culture, which were around even then, have simply (laughs) turned out to be true. And if anything, they've magnified. There's a great deal of uncertainty in society right now. We've got many pressures and challenges as it is. And one of the things that's happening almost like an undercurrent, and there are civil liberties groups who are clearly watching this development, but it's almost as if legislation isn't able to keep up, is surveillance culture. And let me just say sort of some of the main fronts on which this is happening to us and why we have every right to be concerned. So think first about People call it big data, right? The way in which almost everything that you're doing, which involves a computer especially, is being tracked and collected and stored somewhere. Well, that raises a lot of issues in itself. So what level of data security do we need and require to avoid identity theft, for example, is an obvious one. But also, do I have a right to mind that particular fact about me, you know, date of birth, 
race, sex, these characteristics. Do I have a right to mind that somebody who I hadn't actually given consent to know them has access to them and might want to use them for some purpose? And do I need to know what that purpose is? And so even sort of data protection laws that we have at the minute are finding it quite difficult to keep up with the game, if you like. And what are these drivers? There are multiple drivers which are actually launching us sort of without proper oversight into these moral dilemmas around my right to privacy and who has access to data about me, which may have been collected without my knowledge. One of those drivers is commercialization and the idea that, well, I'm surfing the internet, I might be interested in X, Y, and Z, or I might just be researching it for curiosity. And then to get some kind of anticipation of my interests when I next visit that web browser, isn't that a bit intrusive? Isn't that over preemptive with respect to my needs and interests? It could end up being oppressive. And even if you want to try and control, and there's a word, isn't there? Even if you are trying to do the opposite, which is to counter control this control by policing those who are trying to collect data on you, that becomes quite an encumbrance, right? I mean, I don't know whether, you know, the number of times a day that you're faced with a, a cookie alert, right? Here's data we're collecting on you. Are you happy to consent to this? Well, well, I have to say that I often go through the rigmarole of checking what's strictly necessary and what isn't, but that's quite time consuming. So that's an encumbrance. And, and I think many people just give up on that and they might have settings which have sort of automatically allow that kind of data to be collected. So a lot of that is driven by, I would say, a culture and a society which believes in and holds quite dearly, and I'm not saying it doesn't have its importance, preference satisfaction. And that itself feeds into a way of living in society, which is quite individualistic and all about you and your preferences. And I think that's a fairly impoverished idea about human good and nature. And another front, if you like, which is very overtly problematic in the way in which it's done, is the role of the state and police functionaries, for example, to directly monitor and surveil us using cameras. And fly on the wall, obviously, is uh, very neatly, um, I mean, there's several metaphors in there, but it's clearly preoccupied also with this idea of being looked at from a corner. And this is um, a consideration which dates back to great sort of British philosopher Jeremy Bentham as well, who wrote around about the panopticon, which is the idea that in a prison, they were preoccupied in that era, Victorian era, around incarcerating people and how to keep an eye on them without being too intrusive as well. So he had this idea of a panopticon, a tower, which was able to, from which a watcher could observe every prisoner. But what's really interesting is, is that if the if you weren't able to monitor it at all times, you might then set up some shadows and or silhouettes, which would give the appearance to the prisoner of being watched. And how would their behaviour differ simply from the appearance of being watched? Now, if you if you fast forward to 2021. We are surrounded by cameras, true. And I don't 
doubt or deny that these are quite important and useful, although I was very much a detractor in decades past to crime detection, and they're becoming over-relied upon. And I might say a little bit about that in a minute in terms of policing by consent. But a lot of cameras now may not even be monitored. They might have uh, been left alone or neglected. And so there is a sense in which, funnily enough, you feel as though you're being watched, and actually you're not. Nobody's recording it, nobody's watching it, nobody's monitoring. There would just be too many to, 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 to deal with it almost. And that sense of constant surveillance is quite similar to this idea of Bentham's silhouette. So there's actually nobody there, but you're none the wiser. There could be, there might not be. And I don't think that's actually a great way of organizing society either, because it relies on suspicion and fear. And that's really a good basis for anything, is it? If you then consider how much of this data actually gets pulled together and recorded, well, a lot of it does. And if people are producing, creating programs which are getting ever better at collecting through this metadata a lot of the time and drawing conclusions and inferences on the basis of activities that, have, that you've been involved in years ago, actually, because they're still stored. Well, that presents us with a civil liberty issue as well, because if that's used in crime detection, um, it's potentially out of context. If it's unreliable, to whom or which section of the community is it most unreliable to? Who's most vulnerable to faulty detection? Well, we've actually got an answer to that when we think about live facial recognition technology, which is being rolled out by police, almost by stealth. There's pilots going on. There's been concerns raised about it. Uh, Big Brother Watch, for example, have been doing good campaign work on this. And I would say that there needs to be primary legislation. Even if we weren't to agree with the debates and parliaments and the votes, we need to have that debate so that there is an awareness, a greater awareness of the level of intrusive powers which the police are being enabled with by stealth, without proper consultation or consideration. And who is that community that is being most targeted by unreliable use of technology? It's ethnic minorities, actually, because facial recognition software is tending to um, be less accurate with respect to their faces than with respect to white faces. And, you know, that's a totally unpalatable result which is technology-based, technology-driven. And that in itself could be a reason to want to prohibit the use of this technology. What do you call that noise? Well, I'm Pat Thane. I'm a historian with a particular interest in the history of, the, of 20th century Britain up to the 21st century and including the 1980s. I have a particular interest in the history of women and of gender relations. So I'm quite interested in the kind of comments that appear in this album. Yeah, well, I was very interested to uh, hear down in the cockpit for its comments about relations between men and women. In particular, the comments about all the way through history, girl have the brain to act like the weaker sex. Down in the cockpit, man needs a woman to pull him right out of it. Um, 
there's a, a mix of ideas there. It kind of almost suggests that it's women's own fault if they were in Syria. But I think it is true that women realized long throughout history that men were in control. And if they tried to challenge them and take control, they would just be disparaged. And so it was easier to kind of to put up with it and try and negotiate it uh, rather than really to try to challenge it fiercely. Also, that women did spend a lot of time supporting men, that man did need women to pull him right out of various messes they were in, but a lot of women worked very hard to support often quite prominent men, help them their work, help make them so successful, but knew they would get very little credit for it. And that has gone on to a very recent past, it probably still goes on. But it's also not entirely the case that it was women's own fault. I said the whole society expected women to have And they were brought up at home and throughout society to believe that the only possible career for a woman was marriage, having a family, looking after children and husbands. They weren't expected to do anything else. And that carried on to really very, very late. It may not completely have disappeared. But women have for a long time have challenged all of this. I mean, certainly from the mid-19th century, more, more and more women were campaigning for greater equality with men. And in 1982, when this song was, um, was first sung, uh, women had been extremely active since the late 1960s. Women's liberation movement started in 1969, and they campaigned through the 1970s and into the early 80s for equality on all grounds. They got, in 1975, the Sex Discrimination Act, which did outlaw discrimination in certain areas. And of course, in 1982, Britain had its first female prime minister. I mean, whether she was really more effective than the men who'd been prime ministers, uh, an issue, I guess, on which people would disagree with one another. Um, and she certainly didn't do anything to assist the women's movement, which actually became very much weaker in the 1980s because there was so much hostility. Margaret Thatcher asserted she wasn't a feminist, and she did nothing, really, to promote women's opportunities. And the movement did flag. The more women became politically active, including the Labour Party and the Scottish most nationalist parties, because they began to feel it was through politics they could begin to have an impact, rather than through the kind of public campaigning of the women's liberation movement. I'm Councillor Jane Mulnabarry. I'm a Labour Group councillor on Swindon Borough Council, which is a Conservative-controlled council. And I'm a parish councillor on South Swindon Parish Council, which is a Labour-controlled parish council and the Labour Group Sustainability Spokesperson. Uh, so all things sustainability are, are my special interest. I've just been listening to English Roundabout, and that is Mark's introduced me to this song, which I'd never heard before, and I thought it was really good. 
and it was written in 1982. So I think it wasn't at that time, probably not really referring to climate change and sustainability issues we're also aware of now. But it was about sort of overdevelopment and um, driving as a metaphor for modern life, wanting to get off the roundabout and not being able to do so, lack of agency, horrible noises, horrible smells, all that kind of stuff, which we still have and still worry about, but from a, we're coming at it from a slightly different point of view now, I think. Obviously, everybody knows Swindon developed as a railway town, and that went on until, I suppose, the 80s, when the railway works were closing down, actually. That was the end of the railway works. And then we kind of reinvented ourselves as, as a car town and had a couple of really big vehicle works, uh, including Honda, which we closed down actually last year, really sad, and has been replaced as an employer, as a sort of major employer, by Amazon. So Swindon is always regarded and treated really as a, as a kind of microcosm of the economy. It's kind of small, but the, the things that happen here tend to be the things that are happening everywhere. Of course, Swindon has a particular problem of being a, uh, what was um, a small, what developed in the 19th century into um, a tightly packed town with very narrow streets, small houses with small frontages, uh, because they were railway cottages, so they were very small frontage and the streets were narrow and they weren't designed for people owning cars. So we now have really horrendous problems with people trying to park their cars in these uh, little streets and it causes a lot of bad feeling. Probably one that uh, electric cars aren't, aren't really going to solve because they take up the same amount of room. Cars are a problem here as everywhere. We have an extra problem, which is Swindon is relatively speaking a town with low house prices. Obviously they're not low, they're totally bizarre and ridiculous, uh, but they are not quite so bizarre and ridiculous as they are in, for instance, Oxford, London, obviously, Reading, Bristol, Bath. So um, a lot of people are living in Swindon and commuting to work by car. And that is something which people are sort of forced to do economically, and I'm sure they'd much rather not, but people like the chap in the song, they, they don't want to be in the car all the time, but but they just have to be because that's how the economy works. I was, you know, looking up the song and um, I was very interested to see they, they, they said, no, it's nothing to do with the magic roundabout. Of course, in Swindon, as you may know, we have this famous roundabout called the magic roundabout. It's very famous. You can get tea towels with the magic roundabout on. You can get mugs. Um, it's one of our main tourist attractions. <laughs> and actually, the magic roundabout is just the most elegant and beautiful solution to how to do a junction with, I think it's got five roads coming into it, five busy roads. And it's beautiful. It works really well. You just have to not be scared. Sometimes pe people coming from outside Swindon do find it a bit scary. Yeah, no, I, I can't believe this song does not relate to the Magic Roundabout. I'm sure it must do, really. I also think the um, the, the song is, uh, I, be, I believe it's in 5-4 time. So it's got this very jittery, nervous um, rhythm to it, hasn't it? That was a very, it was an uneasy time in the 1982. We just had three years of Mrs Thatcher. Very much a time of change from 1960s and 70s. You were still thinking about the common good. That was what governments were for. They were, they were to pursue the common good and make life better for everybody. And then Mrs. Thatcher comes along and it's all about greed. Greed is good and um, wealth will trickle down and everything will work out. Well, it didn't. <laughs> but I think it was, I remember the sort of slightly nauseous, very uneasy feeling that even people who weren't, weren't at all political, and I, I wasn't at that time, 
sort of felt it was something that was in the air. And I, I feel it very much in uh, listening to this song. What do you call that noise? Hi, well, I'm uh, Sue Charles. I'm a BBC weather forecaster, also a music journalist and a big XTC fan. And uh, I particularly love Snowman. Uh, and I guess, um, you know, we all get the old imposter syndrome, but uh, I feel that I'm fairly qualified to talk about this one today. The thing that gets me about XTC is the amount of weather songs they do. And of course, the album's English Settlement. And it's a, a, a peculiarly British quirk, I suppose, to be talking about the weather, but um, you don't even need to think that far to think of uh, so many weather songs by XTC. Uh, just um, on Skylarking alone, there are several, A Thousand Umbrellas, Season Cycle, uh, Ballet for a Rainy Day, Summer's Cauldron, even songs like uh, Miniature Sun. And actually, even just the B-side of uh, Senses Working Overtime is uh, Blame the Weather. So, you know, I think this could almost be the subject for someone's dissertation, Weather Songs by XTC. In fact, uh, I think XTC probably missed a trick because uh, when the album came out, the winter of uh, 1982, January 82, uh, much of the country was brought to a standstill by uh, a, a big snowstorm, and uh, which lasted for several days. And I think they could have released this single, uh, maybe instead of uh, Ball and Chain. It could have been the follow-up to uh, Senses Working Overtime. And then when they did all those reviews of the year of uh, 1982, they would have always come back to Snowman when they needed to look back at the uh, the snow in January. Of course, I'm, I'm banging on here about the snow and, and we all know that's not really what the song's about. Uh, it's about um, the coldness and um, emotional distance in a relationship. And uh, I, I seem to remember that I read somewhere that uh, Andy Partridge described it as, uh, as another one of his rejection songs. And, and when I was a teenager listening to this, gosh, back in the uh, the late 80s, uh, I, I um, had a, a different interpretation of it from a, from a personal experience. Listening to Snowman as a teenager, uh, Andy's words uh, really resonated with me as he was talking about the, the female being cold and frosty. Um, I had just had a friend at the time who um, I was backing off from and, and maybe was being cold and frosty myself because um, I, I guess you could describe it as um, unrequited affections. And I didn't know how to deal with those feelings for me. So I was backing off and then hearing Andy describe how it made him feel, I, I think, made me feel more empathetic with that guy. I, I guess the importance of, of letting someone down gently. And I I love Andy's self-deprecation in this song when, when he talks about, you know, if you give me a dunce cap, I'd don it. And um, people will, will always be tempted to wipe their feet on anything with welcome written on it. Uh, I think think those, those words are brilliant. And I, I remember reading back in, uh, oh, it must have been 89, a review of Mayor of Simpleton. And uh, they were saying, oh, they, 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 were, they thought it was a bit tiresome when Andy was talking about being not very bright and underqualified again. And, and I, I felt quite the opposite. I, I, I love um, his self-deprecation. It's uh, refreshingly non-macho, especially as a, a girl listening to those lyrics. There were, you know, guys who were incredibly macho, incredibly alpha male were, you know, a penny a, you know, dime a dozen at the time. So XTC felt really refreshing uh, with their lyrics, especially in later years. 
I guess the other thing that struck me about Snowman listening to it again was how they uh, made it evocative of snow, the the up and down scales on the piano. Uh, and I was thinking as well about Snowman, the film, and and listening to um, uh, Walking in the Air, and which I guess was recorded at the same time, and thinking there's a, a bit of a similarity here, how they're creating this um, uh, winter wonderland of music as well. What do you call that noise? Thanks a million to Sarah Smith, Noel Punting, James Wanerton, Charlotte Higgins, Nigel Fielding, Helen Horsfall, Bishop Nick Baines, The Gun Control Network, Pat Kane, Carl Honoré, Lucy Robinson, Shara Ali, Pat Thane, Jane Milner-Barry, and Sue Charles for those fantastic contributions. And for helping me set up the interviews, many thanks also to Paul White, David White, Karen Bates, Belinda Blanchard, David Champion, Peter Mills, Chloe Wilson, Sue Davis, Joyce McMillan, Joe Clifford, and Esther Breitenbach. Yet more thanks to the podcast supporters on Patreon who make it all possible, including the following Knights in Shining Karma. Terry Arnott, Kevin Burt, Liam Duggan, Jamie Dunn, Peter Fermoy, Leslie Gooch, Robert Graham, Marek Krauss, Jesper Kumberg, Robert Lawlaw, Dennis LeCourier, Liz Lynch, Ian Morris, Yusef Mura, Amy Parkinson, Murray Meikle, Kevin Murray, Karen Neal, Doug Perry, Mark Reed, James Reimer, Simon Slatome, Michael Sutcliffe, Mark Thomas, and Nigel Waller. Thank you for listening. Check back next month for another helping of English Settlement. Bye.